Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we discuss the pandemic's current trajectory and how it's impacting hospitals in the state. And many school districts are struggling with staffing shortages, with teachers and principals working overtime. I'm exhausted. Um, I have taken a few days off to take care of myself, but, you know, it's a lot. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. While many people were hoping that we would be out of the pandemic by now, the data tells a different story. The number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 in Colorado is at its highest level since the peak last December, which exceeded 1,800 people. Governor Jared Polis signed an executive order just over a week ago that gives the state control over hospital admissions and transfers. To get a closer look at the data and what it means, we're joined now by Dr. Jonathan Samet, Dean of the Colorado School of Public Health, and by Dr. Matthew Winia, Director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Samet, Dr. Winia, welcome to both of you. Good to be with you. Thank you for having us. Dr. Samet, I'll start with you. You're part of a group that uses mathematical modeling with COVID numbers to help inform pandemic planning and resource allocation decisions. You just released a new report. I want to ask about some of your most recent findings. What are we? What's the most current hospitalization number right now across the state? Well, yesterday we were, uh, I believe, up at around 1,300 or so Coloradans hospitalized with uh, COVID-19. The problem, of course, is that number just keeps going up, and that is what our models project. You found that one in every 48 people in Colorado is currently infectious with COVID-19, while 62% of Coloradans are estimated to be immune. Can you put those numbers into context for us? Is that a little or a lot compared to where we have been? So the prevalence, this uh, rate of infection, about 2% of Coloradans walking around able to infect others is high and worrisome. And that's why our pandemic uh, continues. Yes, a majority of people are immune uh, due to vaccination or having been infected. But one problem we're now encountering, of course, is that immunity wanes over time. And if you look back, those infected at the start of the pandemic have certainly lost much of the immunity they acquired. And those vaccinated 10 months ago, say in January, are also starting to lose uh, their immunity. So we face a continually dynamic uh, landscape uh, here, and uh, clearly we're not as well protected uh, against infection as we should be. And what happens, what does it look like if Colorado remains on this trajectory? Well, not good is probably the um, simple uh, characterization. Um, we Last year's peak was 1,847 Coloradans hospitalized. Uh, We certainly don't want to get there, but these are numbers that we could begin to reach. And that is worrisome because I think we will reach a point where hospital capacity is strained far more than before based on what we're seeing already uh, with reports of uh, limited bed availability uh, and Certainly our healthcare providers are desperately uh, strained. 
Well, Dr. Winnie, as we're talking about hospitals filling up, I'd like to turn to you. Uh, as we mentioned, on October 31st, Governor Polis signed an executive order that gives the state control over hospital admissions and transfers. This order paves the way for crisis standards of care to be activated. Uh, this is a plan that details how decisions need to be made when healthcare facilities become overwhelmed. You were on the team that helped craft these standards. What should we know about them? Well, I think um, part of what uh, Dr. Samet just referred to is playing into this. Um, we're seeing hospitals not only with, you know, 18 or 20 percent of their patients with COVID. We now have a lot of patients in the hospitals who don't have COVID, who were avoiding hospitals last year and now have things backed up. So we are, um, in some instances, already in a place where we are having to alter the level of quality care that can be delivered because there are too many people who need the same service all at once. What we looked at last year were crisis standards of care for the allocation of scarce critical care resources like ventilators. Um, that's not actually the problem right now. The problem right now are beds and staffed beds in particular. And the fact is we've got more people coming into the healthcare system and not enough who are getting well and leaving. And so, you know, it's just a bucket that uh, is filling and filling and filling. And at some point it starts to overflow. And that's that's the point where that we're really approaching right now. We know that there are pockets uh, where infection rates are higher, vaccination rates maybe are lower. How does this play into um, hospitals transferring patients? In the traditional disaster scenario, um, you often perform what's called reverse triage, where instead of people coming from rural hospitals, if they get really sick, they transfer into you know, the big academic medical center. When the big academic medical center is swamped, we try and move people from there out to the rural facilities. The problem right now is those rural facilities are all full. So we can't do what we would normally do to try and decompress from the from the major hospitals in the Denver metro area. Um, we can't move people back out into the smaller hospitals and still provide adequate care because those hospitals can't take anyone right now. And are there ethical issues around transferring patients? I mean, there are ethical issues the minute you start to say, look, we are so swamped right now that we can't provide you the care that we normally would and that may be beneficial to you. We don't want to go to the time where we were early, you know, last year, where at the beginning of the pandemic, rather, where we told people don't come to the hospital unless you really need to. We actually do want people to come to the hospital if they need to be seen. With the crisis standard of care and the hospital, you know, transfer order, I think there is a group of people who may be worried this order would make it so that doctors can refuse to treat unvaccinated people. Is there any truth to that? Uh, the short answer is no. Um, and there are pretty strong ethical guidelines on not discriminating against people for bad decisions that they have made in the past. Uh, if we were to start to punish people in the medical care system for their poor decision-making that led, landed them in the hospital, um, there would be a lot of people who wouldn't be getting medical care because people do dumb stuff all the time that lands them in the hospital. 
Um, and we, we just don't take that into account. Um, we try and help people get better and we try to help them make better decisions moving forward. And I realize this is probably a very complex answer, but how do doctors and hospital staff go about making decisions when it comes to needing to prioritize care? Well, there's kind of two uh, ways to think of this, and they're complementary. One is um, if you have someone in front of you who is not so sick that they are facing a really imminent risk if they don't get the service that they would normally get, that person is okay to make them wait. And on the other end of the, of the spectrum, if you have someone in front of you who is so sick that no matter what you do, they're liable to, to pass away anyways, that's the first person where you would probably pull back and say, uh, we don't need or we can't provide that person with a full court press that we normally would because the odds of it being successful are so low. As a, as a basic rule, you'd rather your doctor at the bedside actually not be one, the one making those decisions. And so what you're seeing right now is triage teams being set up in hospitals. And those teams would be the ones who would make those final decisions with the doctor at your bedside then being able to serve as your advocate in the triage process. So that's the encapsulated version of, of how we're getting ready to do this um, if it really comes to pass. And since we're talking about treatments, um, we've been hearing a lot about monoclonal antibody treatment. Can you briefly describe um, what that is and how might it impact the spread of, of COVID? Yeah, there are um, a couple different monoclonal antibody treatments. They need to be given um, early in your symptoms um, and they can prevent about 80% of hospitalizations in a variety of different studies between 60 and 90% of people who get these monoclonal antibodies end up being uh, not you know, being prevented from needing to be hospitalized. So we're really encouraging people, um, especially if you're unvaccinated um, and you develop COVID symptoms and you're tested for COVID and it's positive, you should quickly try to get monoclonal antibodies um, because it may be the difference between needing to be hospitalized um, or not. And again, some have questioned giving this treatment to unvaccinated people. How do you address those concerns? Well, the idea of monoclonal antibodies is that you're giving someone a, a, a antibodies that their body normally would have produced if they were vaccinated. But since they're unvaccinated, they need these antibodies quickly. And the quick way to give them is through an intravenous inject or an injection. Um, so uh, in fact, if we had to pick who gets the monoclonal antibodies and we didn't have enough, which we do have enough, but if we had to pick, we would probably actually give the monoclonal antibodies to unvaccinated people first because they will get the most benefit from those antibodies because they aren't producing the antibodies on their own. They haven't been vaccinated yet. Well, Dr. Samet, let me ask, recently vaccinations for kids age 5 to 11 were approved and they're starting to roll out. What impact do you predict both of these having? Positive, of course, for the long run. And, uh, you know, I, I think when asked about what people can do, vaccination is right at the top of my list. Of course, getting 5 to 11-year-olds Vaccinated will be a benefit. It will help out in the schools. And boosters address this problem of waning immunity. I think one issue, I think, in terms of our current surge, we just need to recognize that it takes a while for the consequences of these, you know, 
vaccinations, whether boosters or the vaccine availability for five to 11 year olds to kick in. So, you know, it will be a few months really before we realize the benefits. So right now, in terms of bringing the curve down, it goes back to the behavioral things, the non-pharmaceutical interventions that we can uh, implement, whether as individuals or as uh, local governments or the state government. Dr. Matthew Winia, director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado and Shoots Medical Campus, and Dr. Jonathan Samet, dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, certainly, I'm good to talk with you. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Staffing shortages in our region have been affecting restaurants, hospitals, police departments, and now we're starting to see the impact on schools. In Colorado, three school districts have announced this week that classes are canceled on Friday due to a variety of staffing pressures. Districts across the region are struggling primarily to find substitute teachers and paraeducators. And in some cases, principals are even pitching in to do custodial and cafeteria work. Nate Hedgie has more. It's mid-morning at Woolley Elementary School in North Las Vegas, and Principal Joseph Uwe is walking the hallways. Good morning. Hey, Friday tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. Uwe is wearing a mask with a picture of the school mascot on it. It's, of course, a Woolley mammoth. He's a jolly guy, and he puts on a good face for his students and staff, but behind the scenes... Honestly, I'm tired. That's because of severe staffing shortages across the district. His school has 15 vacancies right now. That's about 25% of his staff and he has a hard time finding subs when people get sick. That means some mornings he's vacuuming the hallways before the kids show up because he doesn't have enough custodial help. Other days, he's teaching classes. Right now, his cafeteria supervisor is gone. She's out today, and I believe she's also out tomorrow. He was lucky to get a sub for her. The district has a shortage of food service workers, so it often can't send subs. When that happens, Uwe washes up and helps serve lunch. You just go in the kitchen, uh, start stuffing some uh, some food in the little plastic bags, hand it out to the kids, make sure the kids have enough time to eat so then they can go back and, and do what they're supposed to do in the classroom. It's overwhelming, especially because Ui's also dealing with grief. His mom recently died from COVID-19. Yeah, I'm exhausted. Um, I have taken a few days off to, uh, uh, to take care of myself, but, uh, it, you know, it's a lot. A lot of educators are exhausted these days. Other districts in the West are dealing with similar shortages. In Colorado, about 15% of all positions at schools are open. And one district in rural Montana had to shut down for a few days in October because it didn't have enough staff. We just don't have enough folks in our buildings supporting our students. That's Danica Hayes. She's dean of the education department at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And she says staffing shortages in school districts across the West aren't new. Fewer people are going to college these days to become teachers and administrators. Meanwhile, the region is in the middle of a population boom. So there are more kids. There's a greater need for school buildings. There's more need for education and school personnel. She says it's been a pervasive problem. But then COVID-19 hit. The pandemic has certainly made it worse. For instance, Clark County School District in the Las Vegas area has more than 1,000 job vacancies right now. We've seen job openings double um, because of the, the pandemic, not just in educator shortages, but in other staff positions. Like custodians, teachers assistants, bus drivers. Hayes says there's a lot of unease about working during the pandemic. 
people have been driven away from education because of those health, health and safety concerns. They've pulled into other kinds of obligations and potentially we see situations where other industries are attracting support staff that have worked in schools traditionally that may pay a higher wage. The competition for workers these days has pushed wages higher in many sectors. But not so much in schools, where raises are often dependent on tax levies, union contracts, or legislative action. In Las Vegas area schools, custodians start at about $13 an hour. Instructional assistants make roughly $11 an hour. They do not want to work for that anymore. Shawina Timms works with kids in special education at Woolley Elementary. She's standing outside a classroom next to a giant sombrero. She gets why some of her colleagues found work elsewhere. Family dollars paying them $18 an hour, so... They don't, they don't have to come in and, and take it anymore. The shortage has extended to substitutes as well. The need for them has skyrocketed during the pandemic because more instructors are either calling in sick or are quarantining. But the district can't hire or retain enough of them. Andrea Mesa is a first grade teacher. She got ill about a month ago and was out for nearly a week. It wasn't COVID, fortunately, but it took a long time to get the results back of the COVID tests for me to be able to return. The district was able to find subs for a couple of those days, but not every day that Mesa was sick. Those days, other teachers and staff had to give up their breaks to take over her classes. I feel guilty because it's just we're all stressed out. And for me to be out sick, it, I feel like I create more stress. But she's also grateful to those who filled in for her to make sure that the kids at Willie Elementary keep learning. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Nate Hedgie in Las Vegas. KUNC is a part of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. School staffing shortages don't just become visible when a student steps inside the building. For many, just getting to the building is a problem. The school transportation industry has been grappling with worker shortages for months, which is resulting in school bus wait lists and has even caused transportation directors and administrators to step up behind the wheel. In October, we spoke with Poudre School District Transportation Director Jake Bell and school bus driver Jessica Bard about the ongoing shortage and efforts to recruit a new fleet of drivers. Jake, I want to start with you. When did it first come to your attention that there was a shortage of school bus drivers? And and how did you initially respond? We kind of started to get some hints of what it might look like last summer as we, you know, as everybody was in going into lockdown as, um, you know, we, we knew there was a chance we wouldn't come back in person in the fall in, in 2020 um, due to some budgetary issues, due to the basically the unknown of what was going to happen and when we'd return to in-person. Uh, we paused on hiring at that time. It was difficult to figure out how we were going to train people and be socially distant and all those things. And we know we have a normal attrition rate in this industry of around eh, probably about 30 percent a year. And so we could kind of predict that if we lost the normal volume of drivers that we usually do year over year and didn't replace them immediately, we were going to run into, into a shortage. So uh, we started ramping up hiring last spring, and but it just, the limited number of applicants didn't allow us to catch back up. So, so probably last winter, it was pretty evident and through the spring, and we've been trying to overcome it ever since. Well, Jessica, uh, you've been driving for the Poudre School District for about five years. I imagine your job has changed quite a bit in that time, first with COVID, now with this shortage of drivers. Can you tell us a bit about 
some of the changes and how that has affected your day-to-day? The significant changes that we felt as drivers due to COVID currently is is seating charts. Uh, Every bus has to have a pretty rigid seating chart in case we need to contact trace. And so that's definitely different than the past where we would only have a seating chart if the driver would like to have one for student management. So now it's required and they're rigid. You know, you can't change them day to day. It would be too complicated. Um, Also, in the past, prior to the driver shortage, you know, bus drivers route, it pretty much stayed about the same all year long. And currently with the driver shortage, we have a wait list of students that, you know, stops will be added and new students are added all the time. So as drivers, we have to um, constantly be keeping up on our, you know, who's being added to our routes, who's the new student and, you know, new bus stops changing the the route that we drive frequently. Um, And another thing is, you know, there's longer ride times for our students. In the past, ride times were, were shorter. And because of the driver shortage, trying to make one bus do as much as possible, our students can be on the bus for quite a while this year. And full buses too, you know, we maximize all the seats, you know, ridership. Right. And Jake, just really briefly, what does this driver shortage mean for students? Um, Jessica mentioned longer ride times for students in general, but is there another impact uh, that having fewer bus drivers means like for kids from, you know, getting to and from school, athletic events and things like that? Well, yeah, sure. So currently, uh, from an athletic standpoint, a lot of our athletic trips, especially at the high school level, happen during our afternoon route times. So students are leaving school before school dismisses to go to Denver or somewhere for an athletic event. But because of our shortage, we can't afford to have drivers not drive their route to do those. So we're utilizing charter bus services for a lot of athletic trips, um, which of course has a always has a financial impact. So we have students that, as Jessica mentioned, are on a wait list. We've implemented in the last two years, a rider registration process um, where families have to request busing, even if they're eligible for it. So we know who needs the bus, right? And we can route to the actual need instead of just putting every student on a bus that's eligible, even though they may never ride. So So we do currently have a a wait list of students who are eligible, but we don't have an available seat on the route near them. Um, So that's been an impact. And then in the past, pre-COVID, families could apply for school of choice busing. So if they went to a school not in their attendance area, they wouldn't automatically be eligible for a bus. But if we could, within the current bus routes, get them there, they could apply and, and we would do that. And we've had to suspend that type of busing right now too, because we just don't have the seats available. So, so definitely some impacts across the district to families as as we navigate this. Jessica, I'm sure drivers are pretty overworked right now. I can only imagine what this feels like. What would you like people to know about uh, what drivers are going through and how they're handling this moment? Yeah, I would probably just say that it, it is it takes a lot more flexibility of drivers this year, again, because of the, the changing uh, students, you know, new students being added more frequently and the routes changing and, and just working with these seating charts and making sure your students are wearing their masks all the time. And um, so, yeah, it is harder on drivers for those, for those reasons. Jake, let me ask you about some longer term solutions. What is the school district doing to try to encourage more people to apply for this job? 
our department is is partnering very closely with our communications department and our human resources department on a pretty robust um I guess basically a PR campaign to to get the word out about life as a bus driver and and the need. Um, we are offering some bonuses for people who already have their CDL license. So if you already have your uh, CDL license with all of the endorsements you need to be a bus driver, your passenger endorsement, your school bus endorsement, you, it's a three thousand dollars signing bonus to come here if you get through training with us. Um, it's a thousand dollars if you have your CDL but don't have all the right endorsements. So you know we've expanded our training staff a little bit to try to help get people through the process in a in a timely manner. We've changed some onboarding to get people in the door quicker when they apply. So you know, like I said when we started, it we always have some version of a shortage. You know, it probably averages eight to ten drivers. So for it to be forty is just an extreme version of that. So we've been, you know, trying to figure out some of those solutions for a while anyways. We've just had to pick up the pace with how we roll out solutions. Director of Transportation for the Pooter School District, Jake Bell, and bus driver for Pooter School District, Jessica Bard. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. On Monday, the Pooter School District hosted a school bus driver hiring fair in an attempt to alleviate the shortfall. Applicants were given the chance to drive buses and learn more about what the job entails. The district's communications director, Alex Ballou, says 18 candidates came to the event. And for those who couldn't make it, positions will remain open until this Friday, November 12th. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, with rural birth rates declining and young people moving away, smaller counties across the state are getting even smaller. We'll explore the dynamics of this population shift in Yuma County. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.